Good morning, 360 family. Can you imagine that day? If you had been in the city and you heard a rumbling, a, a clamor, because in that culture, things could be spontaneous. If a speaker came to town, people would gather. It's not like us. We, we need a ticket and a, an event and a place, but they would just spontaneously gather. And on that day, most likely, they were running. And people were, were yelling. And then somewhere in the center of that was a man riding a mule. Some people were probably confused. Other people were thrilled. Other people would have been uh, angry, as we're, we see in the story, grumpy. There's always a few Eeyores in the crowd. <laughs> and I would venture to say that even those who were close to Christ didn't understand it fully. And we know that because after the resurrection, Jesus did a lot of splaining. He broke down the things that had happened, and I would even venture to say that even at the height of all things, none of us understand on this side of eternity what was going on that day. But at the core of that day, which we've now called Palm Sunday because for very deep and profound reasons. We won't get into that angle of the story today, but they were, they were laying a carpet of honor made of palms for Christ the King. And there was, there was this thing that was happening that was at the core of our conversation today, this thing called cause and effect. You see, cause and effect for us is a, an, a dimension of life that we can't get away from. It is both a blessing and a curse. There are things that we do. We can say, hey, you know, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat less and, and move more. And you do that over a period of time, and cause and effect will make you look better and feel better and all those types of things. You can smoke, as I did for many years, over a number of years, and there's a cause and effect that we all know that comes with that. There, you can cut corners, and there's a cause and effect of that. There's, there's literally a cause and effect with everything that we do. And on that day, there was a cause and effect. It was called worship. That was, that was the, the, what was happening in the core of, of that day when Christ rode in. The Bible is full of cause and effect, isn't it? It tells us, like, if you do this, if you reap, then this is what you're going to sow. I'll give you an example of this. For example, in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands brings wealth. And, and so we, we understand it's just a cause and effect. So over the course of uh, the last uh, two or three months, I'm in a men's group. We do athletic things. Uh, I'm the oldest there and, and most likely the weakest. I'm there to bring humility to the group. That's, why, that's my job. And so we set out some goals of weight loss, et cetera. So my disciple and I are on track, you know, to do that. And we're kind of razzing each other, you know, and kind of championing each other along. But we, we decided in our group, what are the obstacles? Let's define the obstacles to reaching goals. And then, uh, then it's easier to tackle those goals. And so one of my obstacles is travel. Uh, last year, I was in 15 cities. And so when you travel and you're in an airport, the food is like basically 
basically a food court and a mall. You've got a choice sometimes between Burger King and Cinnabon. Uh, so uh, last year, I tried combining those two. Um, <laughs> Get like a double Whopper and slip one of those little Cinnabons right in the center. Tell you, man, that the savory and sweet, it's something else. And 40 pounds later, I'm like, hey, I got to change it up a little bit. And so uh, at any rate, uh, so we're talking about obstacles. So my greatest obstacle is, is travel and try to keep that up. So, you know, I was on a recent trip with, uh, our, uh, I won't use his name, uh, Rob Chestnut. Um, and uh, so I've decided to tackle the travel. The cause and effect of eating, you know, in these Cinnabon-like places. And so I brought my own salad dressing. I do not find that highly unreasonable, do you? Thank you so much for that affirmation. Some people do, however. And so when I was in the airport, I'm, you know, uh, he's uh, texting Clay, our worship pastor, back and forth, just razzing me, you know, like, oh, I stand corrected. He did bring his salad dressing with him. I'm like, okay, I can take it. That's fine. I make this raw version of falafel. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It does rhyme with awful, but it's a lot better than that. <laughs> and so he goes, well, at least he didn't bring, you know, Clay says, well, at least he didn't bring uh, falafel. I'm like, I stand corrected, you know, and I brought out my falafel. He goes, you know, he's texting back and, you know, oh, I stand corrected. He did bring falafel and all these healthy things that I was bringing. So, you know, I wouldn't. Um, however, you know, so I had a salad. No salad dressing. Please hold the cheese, the salad dressing, the croutons, the fun. Anything on the salad is fun. Just hold it. And I brought my you know, own little salad dressing. Uh, however, uh, Mr. Chestnut had the fried chicken sandwich topped with onion rings on white bread. So our topic this morning is cause and effect. And so... Um, so I, I just saw the picture, you know, so, but I'd like to show you the, uh, the caption of the picture first. So the caption of the picture I'm about to show you is this. One of us had the salad, and one of us had the fried chicken sandwich topped with onion rings on white bread. Now, the picture that goes with that caption is this. Don't be laughing at my food, man, because uh, I get back at you. You know what I'm saying? I'll get back at you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, life is good sometimes. You know, just those little golden moments. It's just pretty awesome. So um, on that day, Christ was coming, and something happened in, in Christ's response And he said, worship is imperative. Because on Palm Sunday, we saw a clear and simple definition of worship, which is, it is our response to who God is and what he's done. The reason that we need to keep it simple today is, let me give you some stark uh, numbers. If I were to ask you, and when we do our training for Small Circle, we do human voting stations. Go to the station that you think the answer is, uh, is there. And so one of the questions is, let's just take a look at the Christian culture. How many minutes a day do you think the average American, spends in, American Christian spends in prayer? And we say, is it, you think it's zero, go here, is it two minutes, is it 10 minutes, is it 30 minutes, is it an hour a day in prayer? And people go to different, you know, time increments. But the answer is it's two minutes. 
The average number of minutes a Christian, American Christian spends in prayer is two minutes. Now, before pastors can throw any rocks, the average number of minutes that a pastor in America spends in prayer is five. We look at that not to throw stones, but to recognize that what is it that we can do then to, to change that? What is it that we can do to, to take hold of that and say, man, let's, let's dig deeper. God is worthy of more than that. But I'm saying that to you specifically this morning because I believe that when we talk about worship, if I, I think I'm correct about this, we often go to a collective setting, a collective setting. In other words, when we talk about worship, this is what we do together. And if prayer is that low on the totem pole, so to speak, on the scale of only two minutes a day, I can only imagine or surmise that worship in, a personal, in our personal lives is even smaller than that. And so as we look at, at, this, at the Word of God today, I hope in the, in the most simplest of terms that we'll, we'll have a reminder of why it is that we, as Christians, why it is imperative that, that we worship. So when we look at the story in Luke chapter 19 and verse 37, this is one of the recordings of the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the day that we now call Palm Sunday, which launched now what we culturally around the world call as Holy Week with uh, Monday, Thursday for some on Thursday and then uh, Good Friday and then of course Easter morning on Sunday. Here we are in Luke chapter 19 and verse 37. When Christ came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for what he had done, for all the miracles they had seen, and for who he was. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There is our simple definition of what worship is. It is our expression, our response to who God is and to what he's done. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the grumpy people, the Eeyores, the Pharisees, and the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples because they didn't recognize Christ as God. They did not recognize him as one who was equal to God. In fact, it was that very thing that ticked them off at the core, that Christ told them at one point before Abraham was, I am. I existed before Abraham, who was your hero in that culture, in the Jewish culture. And they were, that, that made them angry because that was blasphemy in their eyes, but they didn't recognize who God was. Have you recognized in our culture, have you noticed in our culture that God is miniaturized? He's the old man upstairs. He's the brunt of jokes. He's uh, my my eleven uh, my uh, thirteen and fourteen year old. They have more atheist friends than I have had in a lifetime. It's becoming popular to not believe in God. It's becoming popular to to uh, just disregard God and miniaturize Him in our culture. It's becoming popular to overlook the greatness of who He is. And it begins right in our classrooms, by the way, in our public school system, in our textbooks that where God is not only absent, he was absent for a while, but we've moved into a whole new phase. We're into an anti-phase. 
And therefore, I have my kids right in the middle of it, and I remind them that you are the light that is needed in these places. That is our personal perspective. And so we come to this moment where they've downsized God, and they said, some of them said to Jesus, tell them to stop worshiping. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them they're wrong. And Jesus said, I tell you, even if they remain quiet, if they keep quiet, even these stones understand the response to Christ the King and what he's done. In other words, it's imperative. It's a must. So when we look at these three areas, uh, 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 these dimensions of worship today, um, I'm going to just keep it super simple. And here's why. I hope that when you leave, you're like, hey, I've got some takeaways. In my own personal life, in my own personal time with God, whenever and wherever that is that will cause me to worship. First, let's take a look, just a simple look, at why we would worship God because of who he is. You see, we're told in Psalm 145 and verse 3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Now, we haven't talked in this verse, there's no talk of what he's done, but just who he is. There's no talk about, oh, thank you for this, and thank you for that, thank you for this, and all the things he's given us, and all the blessings. We'll get to that. But we begin by just the intrinsic nature of a God who's transcendent. What that means is it's a fancy word that he is above the things that he has made. He is not part of the things he made. He is above the things he made. And if you think of the expansiveness of the universe and God is above the things, that means God is bigger than the things that he created. Perhaps God is too miniaturized because if you think of God in those terms, transcendent and bigger than the things that he created, then he alone, if he didn't do one single thing for us, that he alone, the creator, maker of, our, of, of everything that we are, all of these things, God is worthy of our praise. So when we look at this, when we look at this scripture and we look at the people who came on Palm Sunday that day, the reason that there was a cause and effect is this very important word, proximity. Proximity. In other words, it's that thing that you get close to that unless you get close to it, you won't recognize its greatness. So when I was in high school, my parents sacrificed a lot for, for me and my brother. In fact, I've told some of you, my dad was a draftsman. His salary wasn't all that high. He drove 100 miles a day to and back, from, back and forth from work, 100 miles a day for 40 years so that we could live in a place that was not up in the mountains. My father drank uh, one soda a week at work in a can. And that's all he allowed himself. That's all our budget allowed our, ourselves to, to have. And it was probably, remember Woolco? Uh, that, was the, that was the predecessor to, to Walmart. It was probably a Woolco Cola. And my dad would drink an inch and keep the same piece of cellophane and put it over top of that can, put a rubber band around and put it back in the fridge. My father and mother, they sacrificed for us. And when I was a junior in high school, I didn't recognize that. I know if you have teenagers, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> 
And just to show you a measure of their sacrifice, they took me on a tour. My, my major when I began college was music. And they took a tour from Virginia all the way up through New England to all, all the major uh, music conservatories, to Curtis in Philadelphia, to Peabody in Baltimore, to Juilliard, to Manhattan School, to New England, to Eastman, to all these great schools. They took me so that I could get to know them. This was my parents, and uh, this is the sacrifice that they made. Well, we were in Eastman. And by the way, uh, I meant to say to you that the, the church that uh, Rob spoke of earlier is named Crosswinds Church. Uh, we had two people that missed the, 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 our workshop last week because they were here. And in fact, they're sitting in the room today with us. Uh, so uh, that, that, that's pretty cool. So we were near Rochester, near uh, Niagara Falls, and it reminded me that I was a junior in high school, and my parents had decided to take this, this tour, and uh, we were in a van. Okay, so let, let me recap that. Uh, a 17-year-old uh, cynic little punk, that's me, um, that's me in the story, going uh, in a van with my parents uh, to Niagara Falls. Not on your top of like, this is really cool. In fact, I'm pretty thankful we didn't have iPhones because I would have never taken a picture of that. Hey, here are my parents and I in a van at Niagara Falls, right? And so I came, I got out of the van and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, dude, I can't believe we're like doing this. Isn't this where honeymooners go? And this is just going to be like the most boring thing in the world. I got out of the van and, the, and I saw the mist. And in my mind, you know, of course, as a, as a teenager, you're not going to say, hey, this might be cool. You, I mean, you'd have to pull your two front teeth for that to happen. But, so, but in my mind, I'm like, huh, that's pretty neat. That kind of, that kind of, you know, mist and everything kind of coming down and everything. So, but then you hear, you know, you hear the roar, and you think, oh, okay. But still cynical, still had the attitude, right? So we're walking, you know, toward the falls, and I, the roar gets louder. In my mind, I'm like, oh, maybe this could be cool, but still had the attitude, still cynic, you know, like, well, I'd rather not be here. And then I saw it. I mean, a 17-year-old, for a 17-year-old's paradigm to shift, it's like there's a greater, you know, greater chance that the moon will like, bounce into the Pacific. I mean, you're right. it's, it's not going to happen that often. But there was a paradigm shift, and my jaw dropped literally and thought, this is unbelievable. If you've ever seen the Grand Canyon... If, you, if you've ever seen Yellowstone, if you've ever seen Niagara, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You see, the secret to understanding who God is, you have to get close enough to him. People that were 10 miles away on Palm Sunday were not worshiping. It was only those who had crowded in and got close enough to God now, see, it reminds me of John the Apostle, who we studied the last three or four months, who was Jesus' best friend, who lived with him and slept in the same location and, and all those types of things. I mean, they were tight. And yet, when John saw Christ in his resurrected form, in his glorified form, in the book of Revelation, where he was more brilliant than the sun, that his eyes were like burning fire, that he had a sword from his mouth, when he saw that, when he came in close proximity in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John said, when I saw him, not when I read about him, not when I sang about him, not when I heard about him, 
But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though we're dead. May I ask you a question? How close are you coming to God in your personal time? Some people say, I pray without ceasing. Awesome, keep it up. But there is a moment of time in every day where we need to stop to clear the clutter, to come close, to open the word of God, to see him, to weep over him, to understand not a single thing that he's done, but just for who he is. God, I worship you. You are beyond my understanding. And your greatness is unfathomable. You see, I'm reminded in John chapter 21, after the disciples were, had gone back to their profession, back to their familiarity, they were fishing because that's what they knew. Jesus came along the shore, you remember, and he said, hey, let me, let me tell you guys how to do it. Drop your nets on the other side. And someone said, hey, we've been doing this all night. Who are you? And then they dropped their nets on the other side because this was a rerun of a miracle that happened before. And they pulled up the net. And then they, then they in that moment, it was the best friend of Jesus who saw him first, who recognized him. Watch. John chapter 21 after the resurrection. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John speaking of himself, said to Peter, it's the Lord in that moment. And then watch what happens. It's cause and effect because he understood like in that moment, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped himself in outer garment around him because he had taken it off. That's what fishermen do. They're out there fishing in their underwear. And then he jumped into the water, cause and effect. It's the Lord. Push! Right away. There was no thinking about it. There was no packing a lunchbox. There were no little floaties on that. I mean, jumped in the water. Now watch this. I find it funny. Verse 8, the other disciples followed him in the boat. Must have not been so excited as Peter was. Towing a full net of fish Watch this, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. Well, not far if you're in a boat. But have you ever tried to swim a football field? This is what, this was the effect of Peter. I want you to imagine standing in the end zone and looking all the way down the end zone, and as soon as, because that's a pretty far distance to even recognize somebody, as soon as like, it's the Lord! Underwear, you know, long johns, whatever it was, in the water, a hundred yards. This is what it meant when he recognized that God was who he was, that Jesus who he was. It's the Lord. In our times of privacy with God, we must have this moment where, ding, oh, wow, it's the Lord. Otherwise, our time with God, listen carefully, our time with God will be reduced to the context of a mere devotion, a devotional. Reading a two-minute devotional, it's better than nothing, so keep it up. But reading a two-minute devotional and moving on with our day will not allow enough time for our inner eyes to say, oh, wow, it's the Lord.
I spent time yesterday in prayer, and I decided to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up early. I won't tell you how long. I don't want it to come off wrong to you, but for me, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I can't even get going until 20 minutes just to give you a measure. Maybe for you, it's, maybe you're sharper than I am. You can snap it in in two minutes. I'm just saying, in the cluttered world that we live, that it takes a while. This is why some people say, why do you keep repeating the same choruses of worship over? Because it takes a while for our inner eyes to see this is God. Even if he did never do a thing for us, even if he never did a thing for us, it would, he alone would be worthy. But you have to come close enough and see him. Does that make sense? Second, I would say that God is who he is, and it's even more accentuated by the second dimension. We recognize who we are. We recognize who we are. David said it so well in Psalm 8, verse 3. God, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, the universe, and that you're transcendent above all the things that you made. When I consider that, when I ponder that, when I hover on that, when I meditate on that, I have to ask myself this question, God. What is man? Who am I? This little speck, what am I that you are even mindful of? Is that the son of man, that's us, and you care for him, or you even give a flip that you would even look in our direction? Now, when you're with people that are, you know, you feel equal to, like colleagues, friends, like sitting right here, it's not a big deal, but the, the, do you know it's kind of weird? I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of, a, you know, a, a Hollywood star or a sports star, something like that, that we just kind of go gaga. It's kind of weird, right? Even though I'm like, hey, I'm not so much into Hollywood, but then you see somebody, you know, so I'm sitting at this restaurant, and I've told some of you this before in Kansas City, I'm sitting in this restaurant, and somebody at my table, it was a big table, we had a lot of people, there's Cal Ripken. There's Cal Ripken. He's got a whole entourage. Hey, he's leaving. He's there, there's Cal Ripken. There's Cal Ripken. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. So I, I got up from the table, cause and effect, just because, you know, I got up from the table, and I went out, and I tried to get the guy's autograph, but he got in his limo and drove off. And I came back. I sat at the table, and they said, how'd it go? I'm like, I, I, I missed him. Hey, by the way, who's Cal Ripken? <laughs> now I know. He's a famous bowler. I know it now, but yes, whatever. <laughs> I didn't even care, but I knew he was above me by the way people were talking. My wife and I were in New York City one time. We're walking down the sidewalk, and we, you know, about, you know, maybe 20 yards out, I, I saw it, and I thought, is that, yeah, and then we're talking, is that, yeah, it was Dr. Spock. It was Leonard Nimoy, with, walking hand in hand with his mother. He had his mother on his arm, so we're walking the closer, and we're kind of arguing, like, it is not, it isn't, I'm like, it's not, his ears are not pointed. It's not him. He's like, it is him. It is him. And so, you know, our eyes shifted as far as our sockets would allow, you know, to the left. And so we're like, you know, and, and then I think, I think it was him. And then we like, we came behind and walked really quick like this, picked up something. Oh, yeah. And then we, we did it again, just to, just to make sure. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, your gaga button goes on or something. You see, when we go to God, it's not only that we recognize that he's great, but we recognize that we're not. That we're in a different category. 
We recognize that he loves us so deeply and yet we see our smallness. And that creates a sense of like, oh God, who am I? That I can be in your presence. Many people criticize our current president and our previous president and the one before that. But I bet you if you had lunch with him in the Oval Office, it'd be different. When we come into the presence of greatness, we understand who we are. Like the lady in Luke chapter 7, verse 37. We know the story well, if you know the Bible. What a legacy when a woman who had lived a sinful life, that was her legacy. That's who she was. That's how everybody knew she was. You know, the story doesn't start, here's a woman who won a Pulitzer Prize. Here's a, one, a woman that was, you know, nominated for a Grammy. Here's a woman that was really sharp in business. Here's a woman that was a sinner. Everybody knew it, including her. And she came into the presence of Christ in that town, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping because she probably didn't find herself worthy enough to stand in front of him because she knew she was in the house of critics, the Pharisees who had shunned her and looked the other way, who had talked behind her back and would not allow her in the home. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them because not only did she recognize who Christ was, she recognized who she was. I have a question for some of you today. I wonder if you come in the room and whatever you did this week that's shameful to you or deflating to you, and you look at the rest of us and you think we're all cleaned up and somehow you've lessened yourself in your own eyes and you think you're lesser before God. Christ said you're not. Christ says you're not. I wonder for those of you that have been searching for God and yet there's still a part of you that thinks he might reject you because of that thing, that habit, that brokenness, that you'd be ashamed to tell anybody. Well, let me tell you, let me bring you in. Everybody could take a turn at the microphone up here and tell us something that's shameful and something that's broken because Christ came to absorb our brokenness and our shame and our guilt and our fractures and our sin. And Christ came and this week is so depicted so clearly that he rode into Jerusalem on his way to a cross, not a palace. And he, on his way to a cross, he made humanity equal. Famous, rich, poor, women, men, everybody across the board at the foot of the cross of Christ is equal because we all need a Savior. Don't let anyone fool you. And certainly don't fool yourself. Whatever that thing that you've done this week, this year, this month, this lifetime, Christ is standing there saying, I love you deeply, and you are in my crosshairs. Crosshairs of love, by the way. When we go to worship him, 
And we find that he is so great, transcendent above all creation, and that he would even look our direction, much less give his only treasure, his son, to die for us, to look that deeply in our direction, who pursues us every day. It becomes imperative, imperative that we worship him. Oh, God, I can't give you enough praise for looking in my direction. I wonder if we would understand not only who he is, who we are, but my goodness, what he's done. I think sometimes that we're grateful for only the things that we know. Thank you, God, for, and we fill in the blank, for my family, for my home, for my job, for my health, all wonderful things to think about. But it is currently 1119 on on my clock, 1119, and I wonder, just think about this for a second, from the moment your eyes opened this morning, whatever time that was, until 1119, I wonder how many things God has done for you that you have no idea for. When is the last time you thank God for nitrogen? (laughs) Just think about that. Take it out, we're dead. Oxygen. How about that ever-ready bunny thing inside of you called a diaphragm that just happens to breathe in air and just blow it out automatically? I'm like, ah, thank God for a diaphragm. (laughs) How many of us were protected today in the spiritual realm from darkness that we can't even see with our visible eye that God perhaps has put a protection around you and we didn't even know what he's doing. How many of us are sitting right here on this morning that God protected us from something? And then we think of all the things that God is, think of all the things that God does. We're told, in, uh, in the story, in Luke chapter 19, verse 37, the, the Palm Sunday story, the, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. There it is again. Not even the ones they didn't see. I wonder if we could worship God today for all the invisible things going on right in this moment. Stunning, isn't it? Yes. Stunning. People sometimes ask me as a pastor, hey, what do you do outside of Sunday? Anything? (laughs) No, I do a lot of miniature golf. Uh, I do culinary experiments, you know, Burger King and, uh, you know, Cinnabon. Other than that, lots of goes on behind the scenes of any position, right? No one can explain. No one knows all of those things. Psalm 106, verse 2, who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? God, I'm going to go on my face today. It's imperative I worship you for the things I see and the things I don't see that you've done and are doing and will do in a second. Remember the story of the prodigal son, I'm sure. Son comes back. Let's throw a party. Grumpy big brother. Seems like there's always somebody grumpy in the Bible stories. (laughs) Grumpy big brother says, I don't like it. Don't like parties. Don't like fun. Don't think this is right. Let's make sure he pays for everything he did, blah, blah, blah. And the father speaks to the old grumpy son as he would speak to us. He said, my son... 
the father said to the older brother, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. You forgot about that. But it was imperative. We had to celebrate and be glad. You see, because the greatest act in human history is not the sun, the moon, the stars, gravity, nitrogen, or your diaphragm. The greatest act that God has ever done is that yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This was the greatest act that God ever did in history. And that's why the dad says, see, we've got to celebrate. We've got to worship him because this brother of yours, he was DOA, he was dead, but now he's alive. He was blind, but he can see. He couldn't hear, now he can hear. He was lost, he was found. He was in agony, and now he's got the peace that passes all understanding. There is not a person who calls themselves a follower of Christ that we cannot forget the greatest act that God ever did and put ourselves on our face. Is there anything that would, in, would, that would keep our hand from raising to heaven and say, thank you, God, for saving my helpless soul? I wonder when we compare our egos and our pride in worship, like, not sure what people are going to think, and compare it to the pride and the ego that Christ crucified in coming here to earth, and that contrast. So I wonder today if I could end our time by asking this question for us just to think about. I wonder if our level of worship is directly connected to our view of God. That if our view of God was higher and deeper and we were closer, if our worship would be higher and deeper. I wonder if our level of worship in our private lives and in when we're together is directly related to how great we see his grace towards us, that he would even look in our direction. And I wonder if our level of worship is directly connected with how deeply grateful we are for the greatest act in human history. This woman who came to Christ, she was in the home of a man named Simon. And Jesus responds in a way that's, I think, fairly penetrating. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36 uh, for, actually, he started in 44. Then he turned, Jesus turned to, to the woman, but he's speaking to Simon as he's looking at the woman. Simon is here. He's looking at the woman. And he said, Simon, I got a question for you. You see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. That was customary in that day. Like saying, hey, you want to drink of water in our culture? But see, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Hey, Simon, you did not give me a kiss, which was customary, a greeting. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. In fact, as I'm looking at her, she's still doing it. Simon, you did not even put oil on my head, which was customary in that day. 
but she has poured this very expensive perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, I got something to say to you. Her sins have been forgiven, and she loves me a lot. See, her level of worship was directly connected to her understanding of Jesus was, who she was, and what he had done for her. And then here comes the stinging remark. He said, Simon, let me leave you with this takeaway. He who has been forgiven little loves a little. You think, hey, Steve, wait a minute. I thought you said we're all equal. There's no... Well, there was only little in his mind. He was as equally as sinful as this woman who was at Jesus' feet, equally as sinful. But in his mind, he wasn't. He had miniaturized his desperate need for Christ. See how that works? And I think over time, it just, it happens. And we have to have the word of God remind us of these simplistic, but so deeply true uh, things here that that we sing about the cross, we, we read about the cross, Jesus' forgiveness and all those things, but we have to remind ourselves our God is greater than creation. And he looks in our direction. And if we were the only person on the planet, he would have come and said, I'm dying for you. And that ought to make our worship imperative. We're going we're gonna to gather at the end of Jesus' journey. And that week, they sat around the table to celebrate what we now call the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that today. And I, I engage you, I urge you to when you leave your seat and come forth, you leave your pride, your ego, your reputation, and all that, and say, I'm here to focus on God alone, not me. To worship on him to consider one of or all of these three areas, the greatness of God or the fact that he would look at us, the smallness of who we are or the magnificence of his gift in Christ that he would forgive us and love us despite of our sin, the greatest act and for all that he's doing, even though the things that we can't see, one or all of those things, I urge you to engage in that and I'm hoping that you'll get close proximity enough to God that you will just, that worship will be imperative for you. That you won't be able to keep your hands by your side or your heart to yourself or your mind cluttered with what happens at 1215 today. That you'll remove those things and say, God, for you and you alone, I'm coming to this table to remember who you are, who I am, and what you've done. That's why I'm coming to the table and I worship you. Father, we're grateful today. Beyond words to, to come to you, especially in this moment of sacred remembrance, God, of who you are, who we are, and what you've done. I pray today that in a room that is mostly filled with Christ followers, that we'll be Christ worshipers in this moment that will lay down any inhibitions because Christ, and re recognizing that Christ laid them all down to even come to earth, much less hang on a cross 
open before the world. You are worthy, God, of our praise. You are worthy, God, of our praise just without having done one thing for us or in this world, just by who you are. You're worthy of our praise and our worship, God, because of who we are, that you are mindful of of humanity. You're worthy of praise, God, and worship for all the things that you do, seen and unseen, and for the most magnificent act in all of human history and through all eternity that you gave your treasure, your son, to die for us, to absorb our sin, to be a substitute in our place, and to show us, God, that life is not over here on earth, but to come back from the dead. Father, it is the greatest act. And for that reason, we come thankful. But we come today worshipful. In the name of Jesus, amen. We begin.